Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hey, y'all. So instead of doing a summary at the end this month, uh, because this is a bit of a more of a free-form discussion, I figured it might be best to give you guys a bit of context uh, for the discussion that Teresa Chan and uh, Rich Winters have. Some of you were hopefully at regional rounds in May 2019 and caught this directly, but if not, you may want to read the article that uh, some of this discussion is based on before you uh, listen to the rest of the conversation. It's called A Leader's Framework for Decision-Making. It's by David Snowden, and you can find it in Harvard Business Review. We'll leave the link to the article in the show notes, but it's easy enough to Google it if uh, you don't have easy access to that. So the article provides a brief description of what is called the Kinevin approach. Um, it's a effort to broaden the traditional approach to leadership and decision-making and to form a new perspective based on something called complexity science. And in the article, there's uh, some descriptions as to what that actually means. I won't belabor it here, but we'll talk a little bit about the different categories that are discussed. Quoting directly from uh, Snowden's article to give you an idea of its purpose, is developed to allow executives to see things from new viewpoints, assimilate complex concepts, and address real-world problems and opportunities. It's worth noting these principles have been applied to governments in a broad range of industries, and of course we're interested in how these can be applied to clinical practice. So basically the framework sorts the issues facing leaders into five contexts uh, defined by the nature of the relationships between cause and effect. So four of these, simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic, require leaders to diagnose situations and to act in contextually appropriate ways. Fifth, disorder, applies when it is unclear which of the other four contexts is prominent. So the first of the four contexts, which we'll briefly define here, uh, is simple. That is the domain of best practice. Simple contexts are characterized by stability and a clear cause and effect relationship that are easily discernible to everyone. This is in the realm of known knowns. So here, leaders assess the facts of the situation, categorize them, and then base their response on established practice. The next is complicated contexts, which, unlike simple ones, may actually contain multiple right answers. And although there's a clear relationship between cause and effect, not everyone can see it. It's in the realm of known unknowns. This would be the domain of experts. So in the simple context, uh, leaders must sense, categorize, and respond. But in these more complicated contexts, they must sense, analyze, and then respond. This is not always easy and often requires expertise. The third is complex context, the domain of emergence. In a complicated context, at least one right answer exists. However, in a complex context, the right answer may not be known a priori. In this domain, we can understand why things happen only in retrospect. This is the realm of unknown unknowns. In this context, leaders must patiently allow the path forward to reveal itself. We need to probe first, often through experimentation where it's safe to fail, then sense, and then respond. The fourth is chaotic context, the domain of rapid response. As the name suggests, searching for right answers here would be pointless. The relationships between cause and effect are impossible to determine because they shift constantly. No manageable patterns exist. This is the realm of unknowables. Here, a leader's job is to act quickly, establish order, and work to transform the situation from chaos to complexity. Communication is direct and top-down because there's just no time to ask for input. So those are the four major contexts discussed in this leadership framework for decision-making. Of course, the trick is not only to recognize the context uh, 
you're working in, but how to change your behavior and decisions to match the context. And also, obviously, how to change between different contexts as situations evolve. So hopefully there's already clinical scenarios that are kind of uh, buzzing through your mind as you think of these different contexts. But the article itself does have a bunch of non-clinical examples to help you understand um, where each situation might fit. So with that, I'll turn it over to Drs. Teresa Chan and Rich Winters to discuss this further. All right. Hello, everybody. So this is Teresa Chan, and I'm reporting to you around the time that we have a visiting professor from the Mayo Clinic here with us. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Rich Winters, who is from the Mayo Clinic Care Network, and he is the Medical Director of Professional Leadership Development there. He holds a uh, rank of Assistant Professor at the Mayo Clinic and um, has done substantive work in the area of leadership development and holds a graduate certificate in executive coaching. Um, He received his MBA from University of Texas at Dallas and has been someone who's interested in health systems and leadership development ever since. And so uh, I'll ask him to kind of uh, tell me what was wrong with that intro or what, <laughs> what he liked. Uh, that works. Uh, <laughs> that works. <laughs> so welcome very uh, to Hamilton, Ontario. I've just given him a tour of the hammer and kind of talked to him a little bit about uh, where we're at. The hammer? Is that the, the hammer, name? Hammer, yeah. Okay. yeah. Hashtag. Right. You yeah. didn't include that. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so he's, uh, he's, he's come off of a plane and now I've toured him around and shown him all the smokestacks and, yeah. and now, uh, now we're going to have a chat a little bit about... Uh, I guess leadership development and coaching probably. Your, your theme of your talk tomorrow is about chaos and, and, and how we should handle it. So I think that <laughs> for all of our listenership, whether they're um, our uh, physicians and residents or some of the other listeners, they probably have to deal with chaos in their own lives in mm-hmm. some way. So yeah, yeah. yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, what you're going to be talking about uh, and give us a sneak peek, I guess, uh, about um, how, what, what it's like to to think in this space around complexity and coaching. Sure, right. So I think um, anyone who's listening to this is an expert in some field. And what we do is, uh, as we become experts, we learn a ton of stuff and we gain our our power and kind of our our, um, efficacy by knowing stuff and getting stuff done. Um, And that works very well. It works very well when we go see patients. It works very well uh, with a lot of the things that we do. But on the other hand, there's things that we're dealing with where our expertise gets in our own way, mm-hmm. where the answers come to us very quickly, mm-hmm. but actually the situations do not demand our answers. It demands us looking at the, the bigger picture. And then mm-hmm. so the question is, then how do we find that? How do we get the bigger picture? Mm-hmm. How do we recognize when, when we're using our expertise uh, mm-hmm. too much? How do we uh, recognize when we're hooked? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I see that a lot in... Um I'm doing some leadership development myself, and I find my tendency as an emergency physician is to cut people off, answer the question I think they were answering, right. and then give them the solution that's right. like my gut instinct of from a point of view of you know, having always to work in an environment that's time-limited, resource-extensive, uh, and yet um, uh, the decision density is so high and the pressure to perform and make those decisions and just get her done is just so high totally. that turning that off in other zones of my life, right, whether it's picking a restaurant right. or, um, you know, figuring out what to do at my sister's wedding. Like, these are things that, like, you know, I can't turn that part of my brain off. So it's very interesting that you're, you're, you're kind of, like, highlighting something that I personally, I'm like, well, yeah, like, I relate with it, right? <laughs> like, it's like I'm an emergency doc always, and sometimes I happen to be in the emergency department, right? right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, we're trained to walk into a room and, and meet someone very briefly, take a history, um, a brief physical exam, and then we write an order. Mm-hmm. And we tend to go about our lives in the same way. Yeah. It works very well in the emergency department, but as, like, <laughs> as I've, you know, tried as I go home with my teenage daughters or with my wife, it doesn't work so well. <laughs> But also, like, in our meetings, right, when we're yeah. meeting with other our colleagues, and we're all experts, and we all have a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. there, talk about the schedule. Yeah. Talk about how we're getting paid. Yeah. Talk about where the money is going. Yeah. Talk about what we're going to do in the future. Yeah. And we're all still using yeah. that, just, yeah. you know, whatever comes to mind. Is f- yeah. and, and as we go around the room, we hear people saying things where we're like, I agree with you. Well, you're wrong. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're making those uh, system one snap judgments, totally, right? right? Like Kahneman and Tversky. Yeah. Like we live in system one when we are doing our work, right? We're very much, uh, or you could say Gary Klein's work, recognition, prime decision making. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're seeing something and then we're deciding, really? right? And and that's our whole arc when we're in our professional zone. But I can see how that would be catastrophic sometimes if you're trying to uh, do something that's uh, bigger. Uh, whether it's just uh, coalescing a physician group of emergency physicians are all like that and getting them to yeah. do something together, right? It's like yeah. herding cats, right? Yeah. Um, or or entering into other spheres like in the academic zone or in, in let's say, physician leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're running the meeting, you can just at the end say, you know, that you've all made some great points, but I've come to the conclusion that you're all incorrect. Mm-hmm. We should go forward with my plan. Yeah. That happens. Yes. And I think a thing to do is to step back and think about not just how it works like in a committee, but we also do this with ourselves as we're assessing ourselves. As we're thinking about what we're going to do moving forward, as Mm -hmm. we're thinking about how we're handling situations, we're dealing in just the same way. Whatever pops into our head, we deal with it from an expert perspective. As we have someone who comes in and they want us to mentor them or coach them, oftentimes the same thing happens. We just say, well, based on my experience, this is what I would suggest, and we move on with something that is actually a very complex situation that requires a lot more mm-hmm. process and mm-hmm. deep thinking and different approaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, I relate to this in the way that my partner, who is uh, a lawyer, he um, has a very similar mindset, right? Like people come there with that expertise and you, you go to him and, and he gives you an answer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'll, he'll even research because lawyers have a different training. They, they have time. So they go, I'll do some research, I'll get back to you and then give you the answer. But um, that's often not what I what I want from him as a partner. <laughs> no. And so sometimes I just want him to listen to my gripes totally. and to uh, commiserate with me. And yet I think um, any expert will try to solve your problem from their their point of expertise. Right. And I think that when when we are who we are in other zones, sometimes those tendencies of that expert physician who is being consulted by people yep. is uh, is such a predominant part of our our thinking once we've been through training. Right. right? Mm-hmm. There's so much pressure for us to know. I mean, that really, and as we go through, you know, from kind of being a kid on through um, our, our specialty training, it's mm-hmm. to know stuff and to be able to make decisions in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we see, you kind of spit out the other end, and now we're practicing, and then we're working with groups of individuals, mm-hmm. or as we're leading, or as we're trying to grow ourselves, mm-hmm. actually knowing something it oftentimes gets in our own way. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, so what are some... Uh, things that you think that we could all like try, let's say in the next week, in the next month, uh, to, to, to flip that paradigm. Like how would you, you know, like obviously you can't personally coach everyone that's listening to, you know, the podcast, but what, what might be a couple of things that you could do differently if this is our mindset and you clearly you're one of us, you understand you're an emergency physician, right. like you get it. Um, what are something that you could, you could change? Um, or what is something that we can keep in mind so that yeah. we start to change? I think the first thing is to keep in mind, which is 
what sort of a decision were we looking at? And there are, and I, and I love, so David Snowden, not Ed Snowden, David Snowden, mm-hmm. wrote a paper, and, and it's about something called the Kinevin Framework. Mm-hmm. It's C-Y-N-E-F-I-N Framework. Mm-hmm. And that was in the Harvard Business Review, mm-hmm. I think it was like 2008. And he does a great job of just illustrating that there are different domains of kind of decision-making that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that are obvious. There's the, like, the domain which is obvious. And so as you and I sat down, you and I both knew how to sit in this chair. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sitting on the floor. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, we knew, yeah. like, this is yeah. an obvious thing to do. And we can look at things like payroll, like how we pay ourselves. And, and there are mm-hmm. a lot of things that if we get our group of individuals together, we all agree this is the yeah. way to go. That's in the obvious domain. No problems. We don't mm-hmm. have problems there. Um, then the other domain, the next domain is complicated and so complicated things mm-hmm. are things that actually do require expertise. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, like get four of our colleagues together and then let's talk about what antihypertensive we're going to give someone. We might disagree. Mm-hmm. We do agree um, basically on the inputs, which is maybe the blood pressure and all the other things that the patient needs, the antihypertensive for. Mm-hmm. We agree that the goal is that we, they, we decrease the blood pressure. Mm-hmm. But in between, we don't all agree, but we're using this kind of uh, accumulated knowledge and domain of expertise to make the decision. And so some disagreements come from there. Yeah. Oftentimes, the most difficult things that we talk about, though, are the complex domain. Mm-hmm. And so those are things where if we get all of us into a room, we actually wouldn't even agree upon what things we should be discussing as part of this topic what and what the possible outcomes are. And then, and then in the middle, like, how do we even approach this? And so we oftentimes just enter those situations and we just say, like, we, you know, kind of blurt out based on our expertise, this is what we should do, but we're missing things. Mm-hmm. And so I think a thing is to understand is that we need to use different ways of making decisions depending on which space that we're in. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes we'll have, you know, you'll go to a meeting and you'll be talking about something difficult and for emergency physicians, let's say they're, we're talking about how we're going to change, how we're going to schedule our shifts. So what time should, how are we going to have casino shifts? Are we going to, what time does it start and stop? Mm-hmm. How many people need to be covering? All that sort of stuff. That's likely going to be a meeting where like, okay, we have 15 minutes on the agenda. Mm-hmm. We see it all the time. But mm-hmm. th- that's going to be a meeting where people are going to, there's likely going to be people who get upset. There's like, this is a sign that this is a complex domain. Mm-hmm. And so then this is a sign that we need to step back and figure mm-hmm. out what to do there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things. It's just knowing that, and oftentimes as we leave some of those meetings, we feel ourselves kind of harmed. Like you may have said something like, I, I, well, this is what I think. And someone else disagrees with you. And then they make a decision a different way. So we can oftentimes leave those situations feeling harmed. And it's not because our, what, we're, what we were saying was wrong. It's because the process of how we made the decision was really kind of set against us. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, tactic number one. Okay. Understand which domain you're in. Yeah. Are you in a complex, complicated, or obvious situation. Correct. Yeah. Well, I think there's also chaos. There's, right. So okay. it's chaos. Right. So chaos is a domain. So chaos is is the complex domain, but with like a time pressure. Yes. And so, you know, I'm at Mayo Clinic. Wait, are you describing the emergency department right now? <laughs> <laughs> it can be that way, yeah. right? Yeah. It totally can be that yeah. way. Yeah. Although it's weird because some things that for, if we were to bring someone off the street, they'd say this is chaos. For you and I, it's the domain of obvious or expert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. So it, it can depend on your training, your exposure. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Um, chaos is so Mayo Clinic was formed after a tornado 150 years ago and Mm -hmm. so tornado ripped through ripped through town what do you do you say okay let's hold a meeting a month from now 
you don't do that, right? <laughs> it doesn't work. Yes. Because there are things that need to happen right away. Yes. And we may all disagree upon the way forward. And so at times of chaos, you actually need a leader who just steps up, knowing that we don't have all the information, and they just need to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And then as time kind of relaxes, you can find yourself in that complex space where you have some yeah. leisure to make decisions. My analogy is that chaos is the really sick, unexpected trauma patient that lands in your emergency department. Right. And you don't have time to do like a pre-brief and the beautiful, like the paramedics are giving a beautiful handover. Literally some guy drags his friend bloody from head to toe and you don't <laughs> right. have a recess bed. You got to make it. Right, and right. then you got to like just call some shots. And right. you, you may not be the right person. This might not be the right site, but you didn't get. And that's the chaos that like I think of when I, yeah. when I think of our emergency departments. Even though most days, if we had the paramedics called from patch and we could make a bed, it could be an ordered system. But every so often, someone gets smacked by a car in front of a non-trauma hospital. Right. And that's the chaos that ensues. Is right. that, you know, you realize there are some vulnerabilities to totally. the way that you might handle it. Yeah, and even better, that chaos is going to be that situation in front of the hospital with all the people on the street gathered around and you're the one. Yeah, you're the bystanding <laughs> doctor walking into right. the ship. No one knows you're the doctor. And that's even worse, right? right. Yeah. On the airplane, yeah. you can yeah. wear headphones, but yes. you're... <laughs> you're wearing the light coat in your badge. Exactly, right, yeah. So so I think that like that resonates with me that those are different frameworks and knowing what situation you're in, taking a moment to check yourself and say, Wait, wait, is am I in am I in charge here? Is this pure chaos? Is this is this is time I step up? Which is like almost never. Um uh, and then thinking, is it complex, is it complicated? Right. And then is it or is it just obvious? Right. And we all actually secretly agree, but no one's saying it. And so sometimes in those situations, you can also proffer, well, the way I'm seeing it is yep. X, right? And, and what's, those what's, can help. And so you may think, you may, like, you're, so you're sitting in the meeting, you're like, oh, this is obvious, this is complex. And the person who, who's running the meeting thinks it's obvious. And so in the middle of the, mm -hmm. uh, this, there's this domain called disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's where we oftentimes find ourselves in. So I think yeah. the real, um, you, you know, step one is for ourselves to understand, okay, where are we in this space? And we may disagree. And, yeah. But then to, to work together to be able to have this kind of common language and structure yeah. of, wait, everyone, we're in this complex domain, so yeah. let's move yeah. aside and, yeah. and, and, and use this other this process. This calls for a subcommittee. This <laughs> 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 or a SWAT team or a, or a working group or like and, and offloading it, I think, is the way that I've seen some totally leaders do great. it. They do talk about for 15 minutes, but those 15 minutes are who wants to volunteer for this new subcommittee on XYZ that we're forming Yeah. and, 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 and outsource it and then have that person, that group or that group of individuals usually uh, maybe report back or yep. plan another event and so right. I mean locally we've seen some of that leadership with our division directors because we had like a whole like um, tri-divisional retreat where we're looking at how we might actually work better yep. together and yep. so there was a lot of thinking and we protected a morning and people swapped shifts that wanted to be there and 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 we got really good really rich information from all the different players um, and all the different faculty members really stepped up and gave their input and we've generated some really rich data from that yep. um, but you know like that wasn't a situation where we had to fix all of those problems tonight it was, let's think about it, let's invest mm -hmm. in it, let's think through it from different lenses and realize that they are probably all complicated issues. Let's put some time together to be able to do that. Right. Yeah, so I think, so one of the things is we find these complex issues and let's say let's have a subcommittee and then the subcommittee meets and then they all explore things through the same the same lenses, which is everyone comes jumps to a conclusion and then we're kind of back mm -hmm. in the dysfunctional stuff. So the real thing is like what you were saying, which is, um, 
uh, as I was hearing, and I know we've, uh, you've used design thinking, yep. like you're using a process here now. Mm -hmm. So this is complex. And so what we're going to do is we're going to step back. And the first step is for us to understand what, what I like to say is a shared reality. Yeah. Like what is going on here? And, and what's the problem? What, and, and really so what's, it? yeah, kind of what's the thing that we're going to, like the general zone of what we're going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. But, and so then what do we all think about that? And so it's an, it's an opportunity mm -hmm. for you to just like, well, from my expert opinion, this is what I think. But as soon as you say that, you're not defending that. You step back and you're in learning mode. Mm -hmm. And so you have the room mm -hmm. in learning mode thinking about what's going on. And, and mm -hmm. it's not just the room in the complex stuff. You want to be understanding what's going on outside the room as much yeah. as inside the room. Mm -hmm. And so you create processes to try mm -hmm. to figure out how do we get the shared reality design thinking. Mm -hmm. There's a whole yeah. bunch of different ways of doing yeah. that. We uh, did a design thinking workshop last summer to redesign how we do continuing professional development. And the one thing we did was we gave the stakeholders homework. We had them interview their friends and the colleagues and into their zones. Great. We had them come and then we had exemplar mm -hmm. uh, stories. Like uh, Maggie's a 26-year-old, just returned from mat leave. Um, she's feeling a little rusty. What offerings would we give her? We had all these exercises to kind of like reveal um, to go beyond just what we innately think yep. and then challenge ourselves to think differently and, and go beyond that. And yep. so so I think design thinking, or at least that, um, I think that inquisitiveness that comes mm -hmm. with design thinking is probably another tactic, right? Yep. Yeah, learning mode. Mm -hmm. and, so that, and so now you have like all these thoughts written on the whiteboard or on the um, post-it notes and you've been sharing all this sort of stuff. And, and during that time, you're not at all talking about what you're going to do next. You're just learning about what is existing, mm -hmm. you know, like what data do we have? Like and that doesn't have to be just the morning like we've done. It mm. could be months, it could be weeks, it could be... Minutes. Yes. It could be minutes, yeah. yeah. Depending on how bad the complicated or complex problem is. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, so as an individual, let's say you're in, um, you are alone and you're faced with something that's complex, just taking the time to say... This is complex. Let me, you know, not like make a split decision. Mm -hmm. Let me just step back and think about it, maybe from someone else's perspective mm -hmm. or a perspective outside the room. Just that exercise alone mm -hmm. opens us up to be probably more effective. I find I use that tactic a lot when I get something that's a. Uh irksome from like as a consulting resident I take a yeah, deep breath when great. the SMR gives me flack right. and I think SMR, oh, a that? senior medical resident ah, yeah. okay. so like they're all of PGY2 and they're yeah. telling me that they don't want to see this consult I take that couple seconds to minutes compose myself think mm -hmm. through okay what what did I say or what has happened that this person isn't welcoming to this consultation yeah. and then go back in and figure out if it's an education problem is it that they got yelled at by their staff problem right. is it that I have to go and talk to the staff person get the approval and then come back and say it's all good you won't get yelled at about this patient right, right. like and, and and reframing that is is, is really I think important right? totally yeah mm -hmm. So then, so then I think, uh, you know, step one is finding, like, what is a shared reality? What's going on, like, what from all of our perspectives? And understanding that there's still lots of lenses that you haven't looked through. And then only then do you move to options. And so mm -hmm. option generation is generating not one option but multiple options mm -hmm. and now we know if we look at individuals and actually if you look at organizations if you look at governments oftentimes what happens is you have this really complex issue mm -hmm. and then they decide, well, should we do this or not? It's just like one option. Yeah. And we oftentimes get in rooms like, should we like uh, go back to the um, scheduling thing? Should we have casino shifts or not? Yeah. That's one way of looking at it, but maybe there's a whole bunch of other options, a whole bunch of other things that we could do mm -hmm. around the schedule that might mm -hmm. solve our problem. And so mm -hmm. step two then is to list as many options as possible. Um, mm -hmm. And the way I like to list options is I think about um, like 
was it Aladdin the movie? And there's genie. And I think mm -hmm. about like Bizarro evil genie, mm -hmm. who instead of granting instead of granting wishes takes wishes away. Mm -hmm. And someone will say, so mm -hmm. uh, I think we should have casino shifts. So that's great. What if we couldn't do that? Mm -hmm. What else? And you just go down this long list and you have mm -hmm. a whole bunch of options. Mm -hmm. And then only after you've generated a bunch of options then do you actually move to like the way forward. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's kind of the yeah. complex system. You want to like segregate the way you're yeah. thinking because each of these things requires different perspectives yeah. and you increase your chance. I think someone had highlighted it. I think they were talking about Einstein. I can't remember exactly, but... Um, Einstein, Everything is either Einstein or Alan Alda. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So Einstein... Um, like people credit him for E equals MC squared and like theory of relativity. But like what we don't know is that he had notebooks and notebooks and notebooks right. of lots of ideas that never really came about. And even after he made E equals MC squared, he go uh, he went on yeah. to then continue to push the envelope, change thinking, be more conceptual, do all that stuff. But he's like known for one thing. But one of the great secrets to success is probably just having lots and lots and lots of ideas. Right. And one of them really hit the mark right like yeah. and i think that that's that's definitely another tactic is that elaborative uh divergent thinking so that you think not just in the way that you think but rather push yourself to think beyond what you normally think totally um i think having a diverse group right like so what, what looking at the team that you build around you probably also helps with that right because so. um, if you have three people who all grew up in the same city went to the same high school oh. had the same education um, they have likely, <laughs> they're likely. They have the same blind spots. They have the same yeah. perspective. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, um, I mean, that's a bit, very much from my point of view, the reason why it's important to have a diverse gender equity, you know, like, uh, like the, the more yeah. different thinkers, whether right. it's multidisciplinary, involving different stakeholders, bringing in patients, bringing in residents, bringing in our nursing colleagues, our OTPT, uh, paramedics, social work. That there's such a big healthcare team out there when we're trying to solve our problems sometimes as a bunch of physicians mm -hmm. we may not see all of our blind spots yep. because we actually we're a lot more similar than we think correct right you and i have a very similar drive even though you're like nowhere near me in terms of our co-location but right, right. probably by virtue of being immersed physicians yep. we have a shared culture and understanding that I knew we can't exceed yeah i knew i liked you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right um okay so um think about what uh, type of um environment you're in mm -hmm. um think about how you might um go beyond your usual thinking stop pause ask the right questions, go further into yep. um, defining the problem, invest some time in really understanding what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing you've said so far is don't start with the only solution. Totally. Uh, don't stop there. Just go, keep going, keep Correct. going and keep going. And, and, and be... Uh, find that creative five-year-old that would have been like, let's use popsicles yeah. um, and be okay with that. Yep. And you're probably not going to pick the popsicle idea, although I did recently pick a popsicle idea for our social media blitz in the summertime. We're going <laughs> to actually give up free popsicles. Um, I'll the, go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> uh, so we're going to... Uh, we will think about some ideas like popsicles, but um, maybe they're not the right idea for your particular situation, but um, maybe they are an option that will get you to the next best idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is, is you know, we talk about how we work with groups, like you have a whole bunch of people, but we have, we have individuals who come to us seeking help, 
mm-hmm. um, whether there's a member of your, of your family mm-hmm. um, or whether these are um, individuals who are coming to you for mentorship or, or coaching. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a place where we overplay our expertise. Mm-hmm. And so you think about it from the same perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we help them think about all the possibilities mm-hmm. that are going on? Yeah. How do we help them think about a bunch of options yeah. and multiple possible ways forward? Mm-hmm. None of that in there is us telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some help of us telling us from what we see from our own eyes mm-hmm. when looking at their perspective. Reflecting it back. Reflecting it back. Or mm-hmm. reflecting what they say back is very mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. Probably less helpful. It's still helpful for us to say what we've seen. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is help them develop what they've seen. Ah. And so really help them kind of open up mm-hmm. their own perspective of, of what's going on. So really understand the other person. So even on a one-on-one basis... You're going to do that. Um, tell me more. Explain mm-hmm. it to me. Yep. Do you think anyone else in your zone would see it differently? Like right. that, those are the kind of questions right. you might do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and you're helping them understand more. Mm-hmm. You're, like, it's, you're like you're adding RAM to their computer. Yeah. Like you're able to hold all these thoughts that they yeah. have yeah. and bring it back to them. To so, so that's a different style of history because like, yeah. so as a clinician, my job is to further my own knowledge. Um, about the other person, right? Mm. Like I'm taking a history, I'm trying to get stuff out of mm. you, probably more like an interrogator, right? Like, yeah. yeah. But on the flip side, um, as a coach, you want that other person to be thinking through that same process. Right. So you need to like stop just interrogating and berating and, 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 and asking more questions and drilling down, um, but rather force that reflection so that they can come to bubble that up themselves? Is that what you're getting yeah, at? Yeah, I think you're right. Because uh-huh. I think um, in emergency medicine, we are experts as we go to work and as we're working with patients, we're experts. Mm-hmm. There are some specialties where they have a lot more time with the patient mm-hmm. and maybe they're dealing with more com- like from a complex perspective mm-hmm. and they're doing a lot more listening and a lot more thinking and a lot mm-hmm. more helping like things arise. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different for mm-hmm. us. Um, but mm-hmm. certainly when, a, uh, let's say a resident comes to you and they're seeking your opinion, Oftentimes we are in expert mode when what we should be thinking about is actually they're in complex mode and how can we help them think through this? Mm-hmm. You know, the typical, like, I don't know, should I go into academics or should I go to community-based, you know, emergency yeah. department? Yeah. If you're an academic physician, the tendency to say, well, if you want to do it, you know, you got to start here and then do yeah. this because this is yeah. based on my opinion yeah. is probably not the right approach. Yeah. The, the best approach is to really investigate a little bit more. Like, this is a complex issue. What's going mm-hmm. on? What have you seen? What do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are you thinking the things that you're thinking? Is there something else that could Mm -hmm. exist? Yeah. Okay. Um, Any other thoughts uh, that you have in terms of other other pragmatic things that someone might do on their next shift or with their next mentee or uh, if they're dabbling into coaching someone else through a problem? Yeah. So I think coaching, and this is, I hear mentor and coach being used a lot. Right, yeah. and there's, if you look in the literature, the definitions are very blurry, yeah. very blurry. Yeah, I like um, Ron Heifetz uh, wrote a book, um, I think Leadership on the Line, and he uses the metaphor, like the metaphor of uh, dance floor. Mm-hmm. And so when we're on the dance floor, we have an idea of what's going on, like in our environment, what we're doing, like what our moves would be, what mm-hmm. their moves are going to be, how we're going to respond to that, that sort yeah. of stuff. We have opportunities to step onto the balcony and then to look down on the dance floor and, and we see things from different perspectives mm-hmm. and we can do this ourselves and, and stuff. So when we're a mentor and we're standing up on the balcony with someone who's come to us, mm-hmm. w- with a colleague, what we're doing is, is we're helping them to see f- through our eyes. 
the mentee is seeing mm -hmm. from our eyes mm -hmm. our perspective of the dance floor and what's going on. Get, you know, given what you're experiencing, this is what I would suggest. Mm -hmm. I, this might happen. This may be the next step. You may want to do this. Mm -hmm. You may want to talk to that person. That's a very, to me, mentor. Mm -hmm. So mentor to me purely is when you're talking from someone to someone and you're helping them see the, your mentored kind of subject matter expertise, experience perspective mm -hmm. from your mm -hmm. eyes. Mm -hmm. When you step into coaching mode, what you're doing mm -hmm. is you're helping them to see the dance floor from their perspective. Mm -hmm. You bring them onto the balcony with you. You, you bring them onto the balcony with you and you're no longer talking about from your perspective. You're talking about from their perspective. Or at least they're FaceTiming the balcony view for them. Something, <laughs> yeah, whatever, however technology you want to use, whatever technology. But I think that's the key then. And so when you're in coaching mode, and, I, and from a complex theory thing, it, mentor is expert, mm -hmm. coaching is complex. That, that's how I think of it. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to be working with someone from that perspective of really mm -hmm. helping them see the dance floor. You're, and I, I like that metaphor, like adding RAM to their computer. Mm -hmm. I, on one hand, I hear you saying this. On the other hand, I hear you saying this. How do you put these two things together? Yeah. You know, on the one hand, uh, you want to do this. But what happens if you do this? Like, what, what, would, what might go on? Like, yeah. those are all very coaching questions. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think... Um, um, a, a key thing is we're working with individuals, and at that at the stage, particularly for residents that they're at, there are, are, are levels of adult development. The majority of our residents, maybe let me say, many of our residents are at a stage where they will use what you say as the final decision. It's mm -hmm. they're, they're, they come from a socialized. Their mm -hmm. compass of how they make decisions tends to be very external, mm -hmm. and so they look to people that they see who are successful and who mm -hmm. have done things that they'd like to do. They go and talk to them, and then that kind of they download that, and then that becomes the map forward. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a really powerful position when we're mm -hmm. meeting with individuals and understand that our map is based on our life and our reality, yes. which is quite different from where they're mm -hmm. sitting. And so it can be really easy, and it can feel good for everyone to like download your map to them. Mm -hmm. But actually for them, it's, it's best for you to, as much as possible, allow them to like process what's going on in the yeah. world, teach a little bit, give yeah. them some information, yeah. and allow them to adapt in the world in their own way. Yeah. It's about capacity building so that they can capacity find their own building, way, right? right? You can just give them the map or you can teach them how to navigate the map. Right. right? Um, yeah. There, I, I had definitely, that resonates with me. I've had residents who literally have called me up and said, I just want you to tell me what to do. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best way forward, but let's meet and then we can go from there, right? Yeah, and, nice. and I think that it's important to, I mean, like if they're talking about whether or not they should register for a conference and it's like tomorrow and it's in line with what they're doing, yeah. then yeah, but like you should register, just right. do it, right? Like that's a text <laughs> message. I can text you back, right? right? But if it's like, what can I do in life? That's probably, and for all the residents out there, it's not that I don't want to talk to you. I'm just saying, don't just text me and expect me to answer you in like text message form that's a, probably a coffee kind of thing right like yep. like that's me at the you know barton bean downstairs and right. like actually hash this out and talk that's tim hortons right tim hortons exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, these are the kind of things that we do need to make space for because again they're complex mm -hmm. and so you need to take yourself outside of the bubble of the daily grind to do i guess some people call it the deep work yeah. like the, the hard work i actually think it is um to see yourself outside of yourself and outside of the the daily grind of yet, yet another thing another deadline and chasing and chasing yeah because i think that's part of our lifestyle too as emerge docs yep we're adrenaline junkies and we love damage control and and sometimes we live that they we introduce chaos in our lives just so we can have that mm -hmm. and as a result we don't take that time sometimes to sit in the tranquility of a brainstorming session about your own life and design it right yeah right yeah so that could be a whole other discussion mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. but i think the um mm -hmm. 
One of the clues that you're in a mode that is complex is, for me, one of the clues is the emotions that come with it, mm -hmm. the frustration, yeah. the not being heard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the burnout stuff comes from organizational responses to complex situation, group responses to complex situation, individual responses to complex yeah. situation. Yeah. And those things are, I mean, they're gifts, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they're... <laughs> They suck, but they're also the place where you do the work and you and you like gain yeah. a different way of making sense of the world. Yeah, and I think on the flip side, the difference is that as a leader, one of the cues um, that maybe you got the situation wrong might actually be that people are starting to check out that they're not present, yeah. they're not at the table, right, mm -hmm. and they're not engaged yep. because they must feel differently about this than you because you thought it was overly obvious and you're like well obviously this is the protocol what do you think True that. and yep. you don't you get crickets right yep. and i think that 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 um that tension is a moment it's a cue mm -hmm. it, it is when people seem to not be engaged because it's kind of i always think about it as um you know like the marriage counselors they always say if a couple's fighting like cats and dogs that means there is still something there. There's still enough attachment that it's worth it. It's mm -hmm. when people start falling apart and don't even talk to each other anymore. Sure. The disengagement is, and I feel that uh, that disengagement is can be quite toxic as well, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think finding the cues to be able to engage people back in, inviting them back in, mending those fences so that they hear what you have to say, but then that you listen very intently is, is so important. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much for a great conversation. Um, and thank you for coming all the way from, like, you Minnesota. know, a different city. Coming south. South, I know, right? Minnesota to yeah, Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, we were just explaining how we're on the same, like, uh, I guess, as latitude as Spain, right? And right, uh, Madrid, Barcelona. right? Barcelona. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and he's way up in the real north. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Great White. The Great White, yeah, yeah. <laughs> north of the wall, as they say. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm pretty sure we'll get sued by the Game of Thrones people now. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and we look forward uh, to, uh, to actually seeing you on Twitter, because I guess our audience can follow you there. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's your Twitter handle again? Um, at? At? Yes, at, yeah, there you go. Dr. R. Winters. There you go. Yeah. So at Dr. R. Winters, you can follow him. He tweets about uh, uh, leadership stuff and some of this uh, stuff that he's talked about today and other things as well. And, uh, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello everyone and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna, and with me today I have one of my fellow colleagues, Dr. Jill Roberge, a current PGY4 at the McMaster FRCP Emergency Medicine Program. To be honest with you, I've been wanting to interview Jill for a long time now because of her work in Indigenous health, but coincidentally she just organized a great Indigenous health day for our McMaster Residency Program, and so I thought about, you know what, maybe now this is a great time to talk to her. Jill, tell us a little bit about yourself and the Indigenous Health Day that you organize for the McMaster Emergency Medicine Program. Thanks, Joe. Uh, super excited to mm -hmm. chat with you. I am, uh, as you said, a fourth year Emerge resident here at Mac. I am also a Métis woman from the traditional territory of the Red River Settlement. Um, so in recent years, sort of following the calls to action of the TRC, the Royal College released a mandate that all postgrad training programs must have some training in the area of Indigenous health. And here at McMaster, our uh, EM program was selected to be the pilot program for the Indigenous health curriculum. 
what a great opportunity and how lucky we are to have had you in the program already mm -hmm. with what sounds like an interest already in the field, if I may presume so. What got you personally so passionate about this work without assuming? Mm -hmm. um, so as an Indigenous person, I want to ensure that the training that is delivered on this topic uh, is culturally appropriate and anchored in the needs of our Indigenous communities. I have seen firsthand the racism that exists in our healthcare system, and physicians do occupy a leadership role in our hospitals, in our clinics, in all of our healthcare settings. And so I think ensuring the training of these physicians includes an understanding of these issues, um, that's an essential part of addressing the racism that exists and hopefully um, correcting some of the things that happen currently for future trainees. Absolutely. And I'm sure we can all recall scenarios where we were either part of or just bystanders mm -hmm. of uh, situations where this has come up. And so an important core component of our residency training, as you already alluded to, and so glad to see that our program is currently a front runner in developing a curriculum under your leadership. But also important that this training goes beyond residency, correct? Absolutely. I think um, we, we talk a lot in sort of the current educational climate about the hidden curriculum and how much we learn by watching our staff physicians. Mm -hmm. And so I think having them also be undergoing a similar process of learning and training is going to have a, a huge impact as well. Absolutely. Now, without offending anyone's knowledge, and for all of our listeners, including myself, can you review with us who are the Indigenous people of Canada? So the Indigenous peoples of Canada are our First Nations people, our Inuit and Métis people. And Perfect. so all, all the folks who um, are Indigenous in Canada would fall under one of those categories. One of those three categories, mm -hmm. I understand. And we have already alluded to the importance of learning more about Indigenous health and cultural safety. But as someone with more experience than our average listener, how do you see or propose that the future medical curriculum incorporate teaching about Indigenous health? I think that is a super important uh, question because mm -hmm. although this mandate has been placed that there must be uh, Indigenous health training, there's not been any sort of um, specification mm -hmm. about what that should look like. Mm -hmm. So we're in the er early stages of developing this work. Um, I think that the key elements will involve um, uh, drawing in the local Indigenous communities that we serve and also setting markers that we can observe to see whether the um, interventions that we're putting in place are having the impacts that we want, like we would in right. any other new situation. intervention. For sure. um, also, understanding that systemic racism um, exists and that we all exist within a racist society and, and also understanding that racism has real life health consequences for Indigenous people. It's important that this work um, be valued and resourced in the same way that other critical health interventions are. Yeah. Although this podcast, we started off by saying this is going to be on how to care for Indigenous health, Indigenous communities rather. It could be for any other community, right? Everything that we're talking about here. You alluded a little bit in terms of how to best um, go forward with this. And you talked about how, how the importance of drawing in from local Indigenous communities. And when it comes to involving local Indigenous communities in our curriculum development, or even caring for patients from an Indigenous community, the concept of cultural safety mm -hmm. comes up frequently. Can you explain for our listeners what is cultural safety in the context of caring for Indigenous people? That is a great uh, question. So 
uh, I think it's used sometimes interchangeably with other terms like mm -hmm. cultural competence and things like that, but it really has its own definition. It, it comes out of the nursing field and originally like a lot of the sort of groundbreaking work in Indigenous health comes from uh, New Zealand, I believe, but Australia mm -hmm. and New Zealand tend to lean the way in these areas. So it's an outcome defined and experienced by those who receive the service. They feel safe. So it's it's not defined by myself or yourself. It would be defined by the person who's receiving the care. Mm -hmm. They only can define whether this was culturally safe. Um, it's based on an understanding of the power differentials that are inherent in health service delivery, the institutional discrimination, and the need to fix these inequities through education and system change. It also requires acknowledgement that we are all bearers of culture. Um, there's a self-reflection about one's own attitudes, beliefs, assumptions, and values. Mm -hmm. Well said. It sounds like an important concept, not only in caring for patients from Indigenous communities, but for all patients in general. As clinicians, I personally believe we most often and almost always, if not always, have the best intentions at heart. But as you've alluded to already, we can be better. We can do better. And there's so much more work still to be done. In your opinion, how can we learn to be better healthcare providers for people from the Indigenous community, both maybe on an individual and a system level? Um, so I, I think that's an important question. And as I said, this is sort of in its infancy, the work that mm -hmm. we're doing. But I think a lot of the emerging research on this topic is showing that perhaps one of the best places to invest our efforts may be on developing self-evaluative physicians. That definition of cultural safety that we talked about requires one to be able to, to be self-evaluative. Mm -hmm. So that process requires being willing to embrace the fact that we all exist in a racist, heterosexist, mm -hmm. gender normative society, all mm -hmm. of those things, right? All of the prejudices that are inherent in our environment. And as such, we have all internalized racism and other prejudices. So the goal is to examine our own values and assumptions and be aware of how those impact the way we deliver care. And just as you said, Joe, this type of reflective practice benefits certainly our Indigenous patients, but will also benefit all of our other uh, many marginalized groups that we care for, certainly, definitely in the emergency department mm. on a daily basis. So overall, whether you're caring for Indigenous communities or not, or any other patients from any other t community, it's important to incorporate such reflective practice. I mean, after all, isn't that what you wished for when you first went to medical school? To provide the best care for all your patients. Now, Jill, what are some key practical resources that we have access to when it comes to improving our care delivered to people from Indigenous communities? Where can I turn to when I'm on a shift in the emergency room? So that, that's a really important question. And I think um, for anyone in any community, one of the great things that you can do to help to support your Indigenous patients is to be aware of what the resources are and to know that as much as you, we can all strive to be as culturally uh, safe as, as we can be, we will have limitations. Mm -hmm. And so then the, the goal is not just to do the work yourself. The goal is to bring in the people who are best to do that work. Um, and so in our community here in Hamilton, I think the two really key uh, resources that I would like to highlight would be that at Hamilton Health Sciences, we have the um, Aboriginal Patient Navigator. Mm -hmm. So you can access that through paging. Um, uh, it's currently the position is occupied and uh, funded, which is great. And that's someone who can occupy a lot of different uh, roles for the patient to accompany them on clinic visits to um, if they are inpatients to help to uh, navigate any cultural needs that they might have, any traditional practices that might be supportive to them, if in fact that's something that that person would want. Um, 
So that's a great resource. The other one that I would suggest is Deidua de Desne, which is our uh, community, Indigenous Community Health Centre in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can probably best just Google uh, <laughs> Indigenous Community Health Centre Hamilton. Don't worry, we'll provide the show Perfect. notes and Perfect. it will actually be, you know, spelled Written out properly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so they, they have a whole plethora of services. And I think another thing that is important is if they don't offer the services that you uh, that are best suited to your patient, they are very knowledgeable in the other community of resource providers gotcha. that exist. And so they can point you in the right direction. Yes. And as someone who just recently met our Hamilton Health Science Aboriginal patient navigator uh, in our um, teaching day around Mm -hmm. Indigenous health that Jill organized, um, she's available 24-7, on call, all the time. All you have to do is dial paging like you would for any other consult services or any other resources that you may need and just ask for the Hamilton Health Science Aboriginal patient navigator on call. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being here today. We have just touched, not even scraped the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Indigenous health. But hopefully we have provided our listeners with some useful information and resources going forward. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. And for every all of our listeners, there will be show notes as always, and you will be able to have access to the resources that Jill was alluding to. Thanks and see you next time. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching Teaching That Counts. All right, thanks again for tuning in to yet another episode of Teaching That Counts. I'm Teresa. Hey, I'm Aleem Nagji. And we're here to take you through another segment on how to up your teaching game. So what are we talking about this month? So today we're going to talk about how to tailor this teaching to the individual learner. Do we have genetic testing? No, but we can make sure that you're just as specific with your learner. All right. So um, what's the first thing you should do when you're meeting a learner? Let's say we've got Samantha. Samantha walks on shift. She is a keen elective medical student from, let's say, University of British Columbia, you know, traveling far just to come here to one of our affiliated teaching sites. And she just wants to have a good time. So the first step, like anything in medicine, is to take that history, right? Mm-hmm. So we really want to get a sense and, you know, teacher, you've already given me some of that information there. We won't hold the fact that she's from BC against her, you know, we'll be mm-hmm. non-judgmental. Yeah. But we really want to get a sense. So like, what's your level of training, right? So are you a med student, PGY1, PGY2? Yeah. What did you do before medical school? And how much experience do you actually have in emergency medicine? Is this your first rotation here? Or, you know, are you on the, that week before CARMS where you're on like week 12 of 12 of emergency medicine? I'm gonna have different expectations for you. Yep. And then really getting a sense of like, what's the next step? This is really helpful for specialties where there's multiple different routes. So for our family medicine residents, I'm always asking them, what are you going to do after? Are you going to go do rural family? We're going to do emerge and you're going to do hospitalist and you're going to do everything. Or are you thinking I'm going to do office based practice and I'm going to do cosmetics, right? Because then our objectives are going to change from that. Yeah. Uh, What's interesting is that I recently had a PGY5 who had gone named. Uh, This person explained to me that because someone didn't take this history, um, this person got treated like a clinical clerk <laughs> when this person was in PGY-5. Wow. And so in case you don't uh, take anything else from this, I would say don't embarrass yourself. Um, definitely take a history. 
Yeah. They're your first patient of the day, I think about it. Rob Woods always talks about how they're the last patient of your day too, right? <laughs> they're like that resuscitation They just case. won't leave. <laughs> that start with and then yeah. you end the shift with and yeah. you're still there tying loose ends. I think about if you think about them as one of the many people that you're accountable to, um, that you'll know to take the history. It's just intuitive. You're doc. That's what you do. Yeah. And, and that's an easy framework for us to go. And once you have that history, you can really move on to step two, which is negotiating those learning goals. Okay. So what are we going to do today? And the way I break it down for my learners is to really say, so we're together for the next eight hours. What are we going to walk away and say we actually did together today? Right. Yeah. What's one thing we can work on? Because like we've talked about before, when you ask the eMERGE residents, they're like, yay, resuscitation. And oh, my God, I want to do all the procedures that come in the door. Or they give me a really broad, generic thing like cardiology. Great. Like, what does that actually mean? What are we actually going to work on today? Let's nuance that down, find a detail. Okay, let's talk about specific EKGs that we're going to look for. Maybe we're going to talk about ischemia or blocks, or we're going to look at syncope EKGs. Yeah. We're going to really create that learning goal for the two of us so that when we walk away at the end of the day, we can say, this is what we talked about. Yeah. And I think that that can be inclusive of things like we talked about EPAs last episode, but it can be about learning tasks. It can be it can be interpersonal skills. It can be the rest of the CanMeds framework. Right. It doesn't always have to be um, medical expert content. For sure. Right. It could be I want to let's say for a senior resident, I, I want to actually flow to the department today. Right. Yeah. Which is something that they don't often don't get to do until later in their training. And at some sites, never. Right. Yeah. And so you want to think if you're a communities person, uh, how can I augment this person's game? Well, you can give them an opportunity. They might not be able to do otherwise sometimes. And this is really helpful for your off-service residents, where sometimes I struggle to know what do you actually want to learn, right? So yeah. if you're in public health or lab sciences, are you someone who wants to see the acute care resuscitation? Or are you someone who's looking at it more from a, a, a holistic lens, right? To say, how do patients go through the system from here? What are the resources in the community? So we can set learning goals that are specific. And this allows you to really tailor this rotation to that individual learner. And learners love this. And this also helps build respect for us as an eMERGE community. Yeah. Some of the um, most memorable experiences I've had is with like an off-surface radiology resident. And we really bond because I'm like, hey, we're going to read every x-ray. <laughs> we're going to contextualize it so you'll yeah. also see the patient right yeah. and so the idea would be at least at the very least i would get him to come and see the patient really quickly and say hello and then this is the person with attention pneumothorax and then see it and close that loop right um and so i think that that's important to to uh, definitely um, negotiate that between you and your learner so collaborate to create some shared goals I also, at this point, use this as an opportunity to explain what my expectations of the learner are. Mm -hmm. And that's huge, right? Because how many times have you gone into a relationship and you're not clear on what the other person expects from you or wants from you? And then it creates this awkward dynamic later on, right? Yeah. So this, is, this can be logistical, like I need these type of stickers, I want you to see these type of patients, I want you to tell me about these type of tests if you're going to order yeah. them. You need to chart on this page. You need to, yeah, like that might be the logistical pieces, or it might be kind of down to the details of, you know what, in my patients, I really like you to do a social history. I expect you to use these decision tools. Yeah. These are the type of resources we have available, or these are the things that our consultants like. So yeah. it really allows you to get into some nitty gritty details before the learner makes that mistake and then feels awkward about it. Yeah. Excellent. So I think that you're negotiating both what your preferences are, their preferences, you're getting to know them a little bit. That's great. I, I always consider that sort of part of a history, but it's kind of like the more in-depth, complex history. And then what's next? So I think here is where you can really diagnose what the learner needs. And so this comes back to when they're doing their presentation or when you're observing the learner doing something, Ooh. really trying to step back. And I think in emergency medicine, especially for those of you who are chatty like me, the tendency is to cut off within, what is it, five, seven seconds, yeah. right? And so I actually count in my head, which is like the longest five seconds in my life. 
But I really try and step back and say, what can I watch and what can I see the learner doing? Because mm. that actually gives you some context to frame your feedback with them in. Because mm. you've now seen them do something and you've now figured out exactly what is the action that you want to comment on or the performance gap, right? So is there something where you saw them do something and there's a knowledge gap that you're yeah. seeing? And sometimes here also in the diagnosis phase, I want to ask more open-ended questions, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, we have Samantha and we saw her see a patient with chest pain and she prescribed aspirin, but in the history, you were concerned about the potential for a GI bleed, right? So you might want to step back and say, okay, so Samantha, I saw you do this where you administered aspirin and this patient had a history of GI bleeding. What was going through your mind at that time? We can really uncover the frames that are behind that action. And we might get a performance gap where the learner actually had the right intention because she was thought this was very high risk of MI, or it might be a knowledge gap where she didn't get that piece on history. Our feedback is gonna be different and that much more specific because we've really taken the time to diagnose the problem with the learner. Yeah, and then just like anything else, you should have a differential. So as you get more nuanced in your um, teaching, like if you're early career, you're gonna have to build those repertoire of all the different kinds of learners. But after some time, do you think about the differential diagnosis for why Samantha might have given aspirin? It might have been that, you know, the nurses already gave aspirin and Samantha's just backshorting. <laughs> it could be other kind of like, um, prompts because she's really worried about MI and she's like the GI bleed was trivial it was like Mallory Weiss from three months ago like whatever mm -hmm. it could be that there are other things they're going through and think that having that more nuanced differential for why and not just attributing an error to always medical expertise gaps would be important because if the worst is when you tell someone like who is a PGY5 <laughs> that you need to like ask about GI bleed for and before you give aspirin yeah they probably know that it's just that there might have been a rational reason why they actually didn't do it. And so the exploring that and being open-ended is important. And that creates respect in the relationship between you and the learner. Mm -hmm. And it takes you away from this, I know everything and I'm going to impart my knowledge on you to more we're going to have conversations about the, the patients that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And we're going to build, um, we're going to try and do what's best for the patient mm -hmm. together. So I like that because it evens the playing field a little bit here too, yeah. both by specificity and also its authenticity. Yeah. And I think that you may raise a really good point. Part of any kind of diagnosis includes physical exam. So I would put in like that observation is like the equivalent of physical exam. So even if you don't do a head to toe, including like neural vital signs on your patient, like fundoscopy, <laughs> exactly. You don't need to look in everyone's real ears, thing? right? A targeted physical or a targeted observation of something related to what you wanted to work on that day. Like I'm gonna watch you talk to the nurses today because you mm -hmm. want to manage the department. I'm gonna like listen in and walk by and look like I'm not really, I'm playing Candy Crush. Yeah. I'm gonna listen to a PGY5 who wants to run the department, talk to the nurses. Guess what? That's part of the physical exam for that exact diagnosis, which is I wanna know, can you collaborate and build a team around you to get stuff done? Because if you can't, then that's a red flag for me and we need to debrief that and we need to work on that and then I need to explore why that interpersonal skill went wrong. That's great, Teresa, because you know what, what you're talking about here is really tailoring that teaching moment and that's mm -hmm. step four in our pathway here. And we've talked about this before where you've recognized a teachable moment and you've tagged it and now you're really going to tailor it to that individual in front of you because mm -hmm. you can see, okay, I know based on how you've described yourself in your future career, I know that this is the gap that you're going to have and these are the types of patients you're going to see or mm -hmm. these are the types of encounters you're going to see. 
I can now tailor that feedback to here. Mm -hmm. It's like you said too, it's the worst case scenario where you go on a huge rant about evidence-based medicine and you know this kind of thing. And then at the end of it, you're the, the medical student or the resident turns to you and is like, oh yeah, I have a PhD in that. And you're like, oh. yeah. Huh. Or worse, yeah. they wrote the guideline. Right, right? Yeah. right? Like, oh my gosh. Right? Oh, well. And they're like, oh, I was on the guideline job, the core team yeah. for that. And right? I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you look like you look like you didn't understand the context. And, yeah. and I think that we all make mistakes like that. How many times have we not asked about something and then embarrass ourselves when we talk to a consultant. Of course, everyone does it. But we're just trying to make sure that you think through the the steps that might help you tailor that better. Yeah. Um, I think that you, you can't get to know every resident and all the nitty gritty. You're not going to read their CV, you know, <laughs> like in the first five minutes, their shift. But if you're going to have someone for a month, it might be worthwhile to like, you know, dive a little deeper. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where the apprenticeship model really helps build that rapport. And so you'll have your, if you're a preceptor, if you're lucky enough to do that, or if you're wor working with someone longitudinally, I think that's when you can get a little bit more information. They'll tell me a little bit more about yourself. Mm -hmm. In between cases, maybe if you buy them a cookie, they'll, you know, like, you know, you'll be able to bond over a little bit of that and take a better history and then tailor everything better. So let's review again the four steps. Number one. Take a history. And I would say physical exam. Yes. Mm -hmm. Number two. Let's negotiate those learning goals. So this is where you got to sit down and really come to a consensus. Here are my expectations of you and what do you want to get out of today and really getting them to narrow that down into something you can achieve in a shift. So it's almost like that's my review systems. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. What else? Uh, we've got the third thing. So diagnosing the learner's needs. So this is where based on your observation, you're asking open-ended questions, you're really letting them talk more, mm -hmm. you're really trying to listen and observe what's being done, coming back to that physical exam. Yeah. And then the fourth one? So we gotta tailor those teaching moments. This is where we want that specificity of feedback that really takes into account the things that you've seen before and allows you to generate ideas and feedback for that learner that reflects their future practice, their current state of affairs, and any performance or knowledge gaps that may exist. Yeah, I think about that as like a management plan, right? How are you gonna do this? Now, obviously not everyone's gonna have, you know, like some of the educational training. This might be something new to them. A lot of our junior faculty members, they might have seen some of this happen. Um, so I'm just gonna throw it out there. If you're ever stuck with a trainee that you're like, I don't know how to teach this phenotype because I've never had a, um, lab medicine resident before, this is where you should reach out to your program director or your CT director and say, do you have any tips and tricks and have a conversation? Because just like when you were doing history, physical review of systems, you know, management diagnosis, all that stuff, uh, your differential was kind of narrow and you mm -hmm. didn't really have all the repertoire. So reach out to someone more experienced in your group, maybe just have a coffee with them, have a phone call, text them, like just reach out to people who can build up that repertoire. Don't be afraid. There's a huge community of really active award-winning educators in all of our teaching sites, such phenomenal people. Um, and I think that it's worthwhile for you to have those conversations. That's a great point. I When I first started in practice, that's a big thing that I would do is overhear how other staff taught their residents and just steal their ideas, right? And, and kind of credit it back to them, like, you know, Sherbs has a great uh, teaching spiel that he starts with and, and really taking some of those elements and then personalizing it to yourself, I think helps you develop your own style and can really help make sure that you're tailoring things to the individual learning needs of your of your resident. Yeah, we're all better together. So like, let's make sure that we are all up in each other's game. And even just someone that might've come in at the same time as you, they just might have a different perspective. Maybe they attended a workshop, maybe they've done the clinician educator diploma. You never know when someone that's actually at your level or even junior to you can teach you something awesome. So for sure, for sure, reach out and build that repertoire and, and refine your skills. 
That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. Hey guys, before we let you go after this podcast, we just wanted to do our shout outs for the first month of 2020. First and foremost, we wanted to uh, give a special mention to the group of staff and residents uh, from Hamilton's uh, McMaster Emergency Medicine Program that are going to Namibia early in 2020. There is still time to donate on their GoFundMe in January, so please, if you have a few extra bucks to spare and you can help them out with their in-country costs, it would be greatly appreciated. So our group, including our own Joanna Dida, is partnering with the University of Namibia to teach emergency medical skills to medical students. I'd say over one week, it includes a bunch of lectures and simulations, and it's a great cause for anyone that can help out. Probably most people that are within the program have seen the GoFundMe uh, link email float around, but we'll include it in the show notes here as well. Next up, I wanted to offer congratulations to the new cohort of CCFPEM residents who will start in July. Uh, that goes out to Marley, Katie, Aliyah, Krista, Zanab, and Justin. Congratulations, guys. Looking forward to working with you soon. And last, I uh, just wanted to offer congratulations to our podcast team. We've now done our first year. Uh, hopefully you guys have enjoyed it. We're having a meeting early in the new year to look at uh, what we can do to evolve this podcast over the next uh, little while. So if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to email us and we'll do what we can to accommodate. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!